This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael Glenn Moore. If you have an interesting life story and would like to appear on the show, please drop me a note at inacitylikeyours at gmail.com. Also, join our Facebook page at Inner City Like Yours Podcast to receive notices of new releases and other info. Now, please welcome today's guest. Hello, my name is David Keck, and on October 23rd of 2014, I was a victim of a hate crime. Some friends had called me and wanted to go to our favorite place. It's kind of like our chairs. It's a karaoke bar. And I decided to join them. I walked in and I guess a stranger saw me and he didn't like me. He didn't like the way I talked. He didn't like the way I walked, the way I dressed. Maybe he didn't like the songs I sang. But somehow a complete stranger could watch me and actually go out of his way to talk to me while the whole time he's planning my death. I was at the table with my friends and I excused myself to the restroom. That's when my attacker came up and started talking to me. He showed interest in something I was wearing um, that I had actually designed. So I gave him a business card and continued to the bathroom alone. After leaving the bathroom, I joined my friends. We finished our drinks, paid our tab, and we left together. Surveillance cameras show all of this and it also shows uh, my attacker leaving three minutes later. There are no cameras outside the door, so there's no footage of what happened from there. My friends do state that they seen me drive out of the parking lot by myself. The next thing I remember, I woke up in the hospital. I couldn't even open my eyes. Everything hurt. Several years ago, um, I was in a horrible car accident that actually killed three people in my family. My brother and I barely survived this car accident. My mother and my grandmother stated that when I woke up at the hospital after my attack, I was asking for my brother, afraid that he was hurt. I thought we were in that car accident. I was reliving those moments. Little did I know, I was a victim of another tragedy. A girlfriend came to see me and she sat by the bed and she said that I just kept saying over and over that I was only trying to help him. So there came a point that the nurses had to ask everyone to leave the room. I was going to have to have a rape test. Would you believe the nurses didn't fully seal the door? And another friend walked in, seeing me fully exposed, going through 
the rape test. Because of him, because of a stranger, I keep getting violated. I keep getting embarrassed. I keep getting questions asked I don't know the answers to. I have to be told that someone, as well as foreign objects, have been inside me. My story, which was written based off of the rapist's confession, was now being told on the news. The news anchor stated that I came on to my attacker sexually, and that is what led him to beat me. I couldn't believe how much of the story was wrong, but because it was on the news, the public believed it. They blamed me. I was told I should be the one going to jail simply because I went to a straight bar. I started receiving death threats. People were saying they wanted to finish the job. I was accused of doing drugs, even though there was a drug test done in the ER and it came back negative. I started to blame myself. Maybe they were right. Maybe I deserved everything that was happening to me. I received a call from the girlfriend of my attacker. She told me that he actually used my phone standing over my body and called her, confessing to what he had done. She said he told her how I was flopping like a fish out of water and he stood over me talking on the phone, on my phone, until he thought I was dead. Months after staying with my family and attempting to recover, um, I decided I wanted to go back to my apartment. I wanted to live alone. I wanted to try to find me again. I walked in and there was blood everywhere. My handprints streaked up down the hall where he dragged me from room to room. Blood was splattered on the cabinets and the walls where he was kicking and stomping my head. I cleaned up the blood the best I could. I then went and hid knives under every couch cushion, every drawer, beside every door. I then went into my bedroom. I wanted to lay down. There was blood on every blanket and pillow on my bed. The blood had soaked through the blankets, through the mattress. I had no choice but to lay down and sleep in the aftermath of my rape so I can wake up tomorrow and face another day of discrimination. His story gets told on the news, and it's blaming me. He can walk without a walker, and I can't. He knows every detail of what happened to me, and I don't. I get to deal with his actions daily. I get blamed for being raped, and being victimized. And I get to live with his fingerprints all over me and all over my home. Someone asked me what I would want to happen to him. Someone asked me if I would want him dead. And honestly, no, I don't want him physically dead. I just want him to feel like me. I want him to feel dead like me. My name is David Keck, and I am the host of Surviving Abuse Podcast, and this is my story. 
I am in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I can't thank you enough, Michael, for allowing me to use your platform to, to share my story. I definitely want to bring awareness of, of crime that, that can happen to anybody um, as well, but most importantly, as resources for recovery. I think that is very important, especially for what I've learned through my journey is men don't really have a safe place to go uh, to discuss abuse. It's such an oxymoron. There's such a stigma that goes with it. Um, and, and part of what I'm wanting to do through my recovery is, is to build that network and, the, and those resources. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, as you heard in, in, in the first few minutes was my victim statement that I wrote for uh, uh, to, to read uh, in court after trial when I got to read a victim statement. Unfortunately, I chickened out. I was too scared to, to do it. I had, I was breathing the same air as a man that invited himself into my home and into my body and into every day of my life going forward. His family and friends had their eyes on me. They could pick me out of any scenery and, and I wouldn't be able to pick them out. And, you know, with getting death threats and hate crime um, notifications and, and people wanting to, you know, finish the job, I, everybody, every stranger was someone wanting to hurt me is the mindset that I had. Um, I, of course, with the brain trauma and the injuries, I don't remember a lot. A uh, part of my recovery has been doing damage control because people started writing my story for me. The media, you know, based their, their story on his confession and his confession was blaming the victim. You know, it pretty much read straight guy or gay guy goes to straight bar and takes straight man home for sex and gets beat up. Um, I, I spent uh, not too long in the hospital, um, but I wasn't able to go back to my apartment. I had to move back in with my family during recovery because I had to learn how to walk again. I wasn't able to pick my nephews or my godchildren up and, and play with them anymore. I couldn't even hardly pick myself up, myself up and hold myself up. I have never been a big guy. I The most I've ever weighed at that point was 130 pounds and I got down to 98 pounds and people started associating me with drugs and I was called, you know, a meth head and I, I looked like a skeleton, I looked sick. Luckily, I learned how to self-care, but it, it took some time. And so th this whole journey has just been so eye-opening for me, you know, to not pass judgment on everyone that I see that might be underweight or overweight or, you know, whatever whatever their path may be. I, 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 and, and, and especially what I hear on the news, I've learned to take that with a grain of salt. Um, recovery was extremely hard you know between getting death threats and having to learn how to walk again i had to also learn how to pat myself on the back for things that i've done for 30 years at that point i 
had to learn how to pee standing up again. And I I somehow had to be proud of that and pat myself on the back for that. I had to pat myself on the back for walking to the mailbox for the first time by myself. I so, so much was of my life was put on hold. And for the longest time, I said that it was stolen from me. But that's I've learned that that's not necessarily the truth. It wasn't stolen. It was put on hold. It's still mine. It's still for me to control. And it, it just took me a little time to get there. Um, also, during my recovery and, and, and not knowing what happened to me or, or why, I was in court um, facing this man, breathing the same air as this man that did this to me, you know, day after day, month after month. Uh, he, he, he confessed some things in, in court that I, I will say helped me in my recovery because during his confession, he stated that he told the policeman that I sexually propositioned him because he thought with this being the South that the police would go easier on him. And sure enough, he was right. And that played in his favor. The police laughed and spoke as if I got what I deserved and and didn't take my crime and my injuries seriously. Uh, I did have one detective that stood up and, and refused to allow that to happen. And, and he provided safety and uh, for me and my family and placed officers at the doors um, to every door, every window of my family's home because people were driving by and taking pictures. I kind of became famous in a small town. Um, it, it was a big story and we didn't know if these people were out to hurt me or if they were just being nosy or, or what the case was. And, and to have to be in court with this man and, and hear his story of what happened, luckily ended up being more of the truth than, than we initially thought it would be. He ended up confessing that he looked at me as an easy target and that I looked like I had a lot of money And with his military training, he knew that he could have me knocked out on first hit and take whatever he wanted to take from me. Um, He confessed that he wanted to hurt me because he didn't like how much attention I was getting and how confident I was. Um, It took a while for me to get back to being that person again. I'm not even fully there. It, it seems like the dust has settled on this case for so many people, but it it hasn't me. Um, he went to prison for attempted murder and he did four months in jail and was released on good time. He was released on good time. On my birthday, I got a phone call. It was a number that I didn't recognize and I answered it. And it was a lady stating that he was setting foot on free soil for good time. He was out for two years. So for two years, I couldn't go into a restaurant or a a grocery store or a gas station without wondering if he was there. 
I was supposed to somehow feel secure in the fact that I had a restraining order against him. But that piece of paper did not bring me security. Um, he ended up violating his probation and he is now back in prison. He's supposed to finish out his 10 year sentence, um, but he won't. He'll be out um, probably any day now at this point uh, for a good time. That's that's just amazing that, you know, for, number one, that he kind of played himself off, off as a victim rather than it being you know him that victimized you. And, right. it, you know, it's it's difficult for people to realize what some other people go through, you know, being gay or, you know, just being different and how you're treated. You know, they think that, you know, maybe you're bullied in high school or junior high but here you are an adult and you have to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did you, during your recovery, uh, were you, were you in therapy or did you have an outlet that you can go to, to help you work through a lot of these, you know, emotional issues that, you know, you must've had. 100%. And it, um, saved my life. Luckily, the one of the things that the state does do and that a lot of people aren't fully aware of that I, I definitely like to mention is there there is a victim outlet with your state and they put me in uh, therapy. I was doing individual therapy. I told them that I was not comfortable being in a room with a man discussing this. And so they set me up with a lady. They were very patient and understanding of the new fears that I had developed. And I was going to therapy twice a week. And, you know, I remember this one day, it had maybe been three or four weeks into therapy. I went and I was just so mad. I was, I was getting angry and I wasn't sure where to put the anger. And I went into therapy and before I even sat down on the couch, I said, Melinda, I, you're not doing your job. You're a doctor and I'm not fixed. Like you, you need to step up to the plate and fix me. And she uh, set me down and, and said, David, my job is not to fix you. My job is to provide you resources to fix yourself and to, and to help set you on a path to fix yourself. And that was something that will always stick with me. I can hear her voice when I repeat it to myself. And I became very involved in my own recovery and realized this is my chance to gain back control. This is how I can now drive my own car again, you know? Um, from there, I uh, I was in individual therapy for about a year and a half, and then they came to me with my progression. They were very impressed with it, and, and they came to me and they said, you know, would you be interested in joining our sexual assault group therapy for men? And I refused. I could not do it. I could not be in a room of men discussing sexual assault. Um, and they, the, the facility that I was with is Helen Ross McNabb. And, and my uh, female therapist went to the therapist for the sexual assault and, and told them my fears. And he talked to the other guys that were already in the group and said, would you all mind if uh, Melinda, the female therapist, sat in with David um, a time or two just for him to fill it out? And they agreed to it. And... And she did, and she held my hand through it. And now every Monday, 
I still go to sexual assault group therapy. I have an amazing relationship with every guy in there. And even though all of our paths are different, we as victims are somehow bonded and connected and we can all learn and grow and love and support each other. The fact that I can go in there and spend the two hours that I'm in there and someone can actually relate because thank God, no one in my family is amazing as my family is. Thank God no one in my family can relate to it. But I now have, you know, a, an outlet that can. And I, I think even the best therapists need a therapist. I'm definitely an advocate for it. And that is the best gift that the state has given me through this. Let me ask you, how many years has it been since this first occurred? Uh, two weeks ago was the seven-year anniversary. Wow. Okay. And that's and so it's still new. Yeah. It's still fresh to you. Um, and I'm sure that's going to be like that for a while. It's not something that just will go away. I mean, you're having to work awfully hard to get to where you are. And I really uh, commend you for the efforts you put in to bringing your life back around to a place where you could feel comfortable being yourself and living in this world. Um, uh, I know there's probably still a lot left to go there, but, um, surely you feel accomplished by now. 100%. One thing that I like to say is I, unfortunately, I know so many gay people that would have laid there and died because they don't have the family that I have that refuse to allow that to happen. I know so many people that have been shunned because of who they are. And I, I have not experienced that. I did not know hate existed until I was 34 years old. I knew it was out there, but I personally hadn't experienced it until I was 34. Well, and it's sad that you've experienced it at all. Um, you know, and that's, that's, I guess, a sad reality of being gay. And even now in 2021, being gay is still considered uh, gross to a lot of people. And, right. Yeah. And, and, and you, know, you just, you know, it's just, it's just really heart heartbreaking to know that, you know, there are people who've been through what you went through, uh, maybe not as bad or maybe worse all because they were gay and you know what what do you feel needs to happen in the way of because we get you know their marriage equality is now a, a huge part and it, i love seeing on you know will of fortune whatever when someone call, you know shouts out to their husband yeah. you know, a, a man shouts out to his husband and you know being that much acceptance now we're still not quite there but we have since what seven years ago yeah. right after you went through this had started to look up um what do you think needs to be done now to continue this and to cause us to look back and say look we're not we're doing it but we're not doing it enough i um will agree with you and piggyback off of uh, off of your will of fortune comment is you know we are making strides and some places are quicker than others. You know, I live in the South. I live in Knoxville. I mean, I'm Bible Belt and, and we are making strides, but it's not as quick as maybe like a New York city or a California. Um, it was, I, I, I actually was brought to tears a night or two ago because a gay country music singer won an award and kissed his boyfriend on the CMA award show on national television and everybody applauded. You know, so so we're 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 making strides. What 
what I do think needs to happen to answer that question is we need to normalize things and, and talking about it is what normalizes it. And I, I don't mean that even with just the gay thing, but with mental health. Um, but as far as the gay aspect, you know, like these TV shows that are out there, especially, you know, 10 years ago, anytime you've seen a gay man, it was the feminine gay man. It was done in some kind of comedy skit and, and kind of making fun. They were the butt of the joke. And, that's that's kind of changing with the entertainment now, but in, in some cases they're not showing the real life gay man. You know, they're they're not showing the the lifestyle that my partner and I live. We ha- you know we have a home together, we have cars together, we have a, responsibilities together. They, they that's not really seen or talked about very much. And I feel like the more that we talk about these things, we're going to normalize it. And, and I think that's going to be the, the, the biggest and best fix for it. Yeah, I, I agree with you also about talking about the mental illness. I'm bipolar, uh, gay and bipolar. So, but, uh, you know, it's, and I talk about being bipolar as much as I can. If I yeah. go into podcast and, you know, we, we're doing cross promotion or whatever, it used, I'll, I'll bring it up at some point because I feel like I need to talk about it and be open about it yes. because people look at that, you know, they think, oh, okay, you're crazy. And number one, you know, number two, that, you know, you, you're out of control. You're either up or you're down. Well, I mean, it's, that's part about being a bipolar, but it doesn't mean you're crazy. I mean, and even if you're schizophrenic, you know, it's, there's, you know, things you can do so that you, you don't have to let your illness or what's happening to you get out of control. And as long well, as you go ahead, no, no, go ahead. You like, well, I was going to say, I, I admire you for talking about it. My mother is an extreme case of bipolar, but she is proactive in her mental health. She is on her you know, medication. She takes it ritually every day when she's supposed to. She goes to every doctor's appointment. She educates herself on it and she controls it. And I, I, I try to find the good in everything. And I, and I do think that one of the positives I can find through the past two years of COVID is that more awareness has been brought to self-care and mental health. And, and I I know there's not a lot of good things we can say about COVID, but that is one of the things that, that I have noticed, especially working in the medical field and, and being someone that has now PTSD from a traumatic experience. Yeah. Um let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your podcast what we listened to at the beginning of the show was your first soundbite or first episode of your podcast uh tell us about your podcast your co-host uh how far you've come where you're trying to go with it with it and and uh what what the the important thing is about having a podcast you know what does that mean in your life yeah so i Part of my recovery is I wanted to build a network and and to create resources, not even uh, for for listeners, but even for myself. And I, um, I think to, I think yesterday was the 28th episode and we cover all types of abuse. It's not just hate crimes. It's not just rape or sexual assault. We have drug addiction on there. We have uh, alcoholics. We, um, I've got an episode of a man that was wrongfully convicted for a rape and murder that he didn't commit and spent 14 years in prison. 
and, and was finally released due to some DNA testing. So, so it's a pretty diverse crowd and, and I love it. Um, it, my, my plan was to bring awareness to mental health period. I want to have these conversations. I want to provide a safe place because people need that. And I felt like the podcast was the best way to go about it because it can be anonymous. You know, if they want to give me fake names, that's fine. It's not about their name. It's about, you know, what, what, what they're needing and what, what kind of treatment they're needing and I have came, I have made some great connections and great friends with this. We, we try to cover everything. I try to reach everybody. I want this to go far. I mean, I, I'm always one of those people that shoot for the moon and aim high. I want to be a part of making a difference. You know, like, like I had kind of mentioned in the beginning, if if something like what happened to me had to happen to somebody, I'm so glad it happened to me because I'm strong enough and I have the support team to to get through it. And I want to provide a place for the ones that maybe don't. My um, The question that gets asked to me a lot is, what is my biggest dream and goal with this? And, and my biggest one, I would say, would be if an abuser contacted me and wanted to share their story and be a part of their growth and, and their recovery. That that would be amazing to me. I want to help everybody. The, I, I People kind of question things when I, when I say that, but in most cases, it, it mental health and abuse is generational abuse. It's something that has been passed down and taught and, and to break that cycle is to be proactive in doing so. And so if someone contacted me and said, you know, I hit my wife or I hit my husband, um, you know, I, I beat up a gay man or a black man because they're different and I want to stop, or even I'm having these thoughts of doing so help me, like that would be a dream come true for me. And, and that I would say would be my main goal. Um, but I, I, I just want to provide a safe place for people. Okay. And you're going to send me all your links to the podcast and your yeah. social media and website and so forth. If you have have one, uh, so that I can put that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this episode and you'd like to find out more about David, uh, go to the show notes and his information will be there. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel that is, you know, vitally important that needs to be said? No, I think, I think we pretty much covered everything and I, and I really appreciate you having me on here and sharing the story. I know that, I know that there's definitely, you know, trigger warnings that are going to be said and put out there. This is a hard, ugly topic to discuss. Um, but I think that it needs to be discussed and I want to show that even though I was in such a dark, ugly place that I could have numb the pain. I could have turned to drugs. I could have turned to alcohol. I could have steered away from everything and everybody good to me, but, but I didn't. And, and I want to show people that, you know, there, there is life after trauma. Well, your strength is amazing and, and it's definitely inspiring your story, what you've been through and how far you've come. So I really want to, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cause I really feel like it's important that more people hear what's going on and, you know, and how you're doing and where you've come, come from and where you are now. I think it's, it's inspiring. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you.
There is hope and healing after trauma, after abuse. Finding a supportive community, getting education for how to move on and really live again is essential. The Surviving Abuse Podcast brings you personal stories and interviews every week with people surviving through trauma. We bring you awareness, support, and connection. Listen every week to the Surviving Abuse Podcast on Apple Podcasts. a shout out to Ben, the editor of this show. Ben also has a podcast called Two Marks and a Spark. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check it out. You won't be sorry.